Hello, everyone, and welcome to Raven Debriefs, the show that jaywalks across the intersection between Indigenous laws and the justice system in Canada. I'm your host, Susan Smitten, and I run Raven, a charitable organization that raises legal defense funds for Indigenous nations. With victories against Tosico Mines Limited and Enbridge Northern Gateway Pipeline, and campaigns on behalf of nations fighting Coastal Gaslink and the expansion of the tar sands all before the courts, all across the country, Indigenous nations who are pushing back against reckless industry are setting powerful precedents for ecological protection. Yeah, my name is Russell Myers Samuel Ross. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm the chief of UNICT in government. I started out as chief in 2012 and then got re-elected in 2016. Chief Ross helmed Unicetine for eight years. He saw the nation through an incredibly historic time, from the establishment of Aboriginal title to their territories, to the exoneration of their war chiefs in the House of Commons, and to the vanquishing of Tosico Mine's ill-fated open pit gold and copper mine, also known as New Prosperity. Raven has been working with Chilcotin for over a decade to help protect Toltan B, also known in settler language as Fish Lake. We were excited to be able to talk to Chief Russ as he reflects back on his tenure and on the challenges ahead for his nation. My name is Jeffrey Nichols. I'm a practicing lawyer with Ratcliffe & Company. I'm also the board president of Raven. Um, I'm also a, a proud member of the Lakwalams First Nation and on the northwest coast of British Columbia. I'm so happy today to be uh, speaking with Chief Russ and sharing this time with all of our listeners as well. What do you think have been some of the core teachings that have guided you during the course of your, your leadership? I think I think for myself, I, I think being mature and getting to that point of being mature, I you know I turned thirty um, that year uh, that that month it all happened in one month. I turned thirty July fourth. My first daughter Nelina was born uh, July sixteenth, and then I I learned that I was elected on July nineteenth. So I I had a lot of growing up to do in a, a short amount of time. My my family is quite large, so my mom was one of sixteen children, and I have a lot of aunts and uncles to that have guided me along the way. I, I felt like I learned a lot and absorbed a lot, um, even before I became chief. You know, I think just growing up and just having a sense of justice, I think, was probably the most important thing. I think going going to school definitely gave me that ability to sort of reflect on like what you know what were those things that broke our community down. And then so going in, trying to understand, you know, to what level, what, why are we so broken? And, and then trying to figure out, like, what, what are the things that need to, we need to put in place? You know, big transition for myself was uh, realizing I had a tumor and going through surgery and sort of a spiritual path before I even started this work. You know, I just was trying to immerse myself into Tzadkotin history and be with people a lot more and got more inquisitive about, you know, everything about our, our history. So, you know, in that spiritual path, I d 
decided at one point that I was going to basically give myself over to the nation and, and serve my community. So yeah, so that's that's sort of where it, where it all started in a way. We live in an age where, you know, we're, as I think as Indigenous peoples, we get to, you know, create our own destinies. And I think that there has certainly been historic moments for the Tsukotin. And I, I, would, I would say, uh, you know, all Indigenous peoples, certainly in Canada, uh, as a result of Tsukotin leadership over the past eight years. It is an historic first and a landmark decision that could have huge implications right across Canada. It came from the Supreme Court of Canada, a unanimous decision today, handing victory to a British Columbia Aboriginal group, ending decades of battle over its right to a piece of land. One of the, the, the most historic things was, you know, Aboriginal title in, in 2014, you know, confirmed by the Supreme Court of Canada. What, what has, been, has it been like for you to really be part of that history that you've immersed yourself in? Even though I had a bachelor um, in sociology or a master's in Indigenous governance, there was, I'd almost say there was nothing that really prepared me to take on this work. When I first started, I mean, really, it was, I walked right into the second round of the environmental assessment against uh, Tosico Mines, going through that process, and then being able to witness the rejection of, of those two proposed mines. I, I think those were two uh, significant decisions that we were we were a part of and it, and it cost a lot of energy uh, to be part of those things at least Raven's been a big supporter in um, you know a lot of her legal battles and I you know we're, we're indebted to I mean if we're talking about title and how hard that was you know like I I still think about the 25 years that it really took just to get to the Supreme Court of Canada. I often reflect that I was eight years old when that all started. There was so much controversy at the beginning. It's like, why are you going to the, the person that just created the rules to like deny you land to ask for it back? It's not gonna happen. And, and so there was a lot of controversy going into, into the trial. You know, at the time, I think Roger William and his council and his community like felt like, what else could we do? Like, you know, you go to trial, you negotiate, you go to trial again, you negotiate, you know, you make every attempt that you can. You're trying to make strides along the way. But as South Gautin, we're lucky. We've had good leadership. You know, former Chief Roger, like he, he was there 20, 20 out of those 25 years, like, you know, going to trial and, you know, going to the Supreme Court of Canada. What Roger Williams and the Chilcotin chiefs told the courts, their ancestors had been saying since settlers first arrived, their lands were still theirs. Today, Canada's highest court responded. I was you know, ecstatic to, to find out that we, we had title and it's, it's about time. The decision makes pretty clear. There's no question that Aboriginal groups are now going to have a stronger hand at the negotiating table. You know, there's things that we had a silver bullet for or a magic bullet that we somehow were able to get that far with our the backing of our ancestors and spirituality that kind of kept us going but i always felt in the back of my mind like there's other first nations there's other people i hope we're doing the right thing and i hope we're carrying others as well to this place where we're breaking open the idea that there's title everywhere 
um, for Indigenous people and that, you know, that those conversations will make it a lot easier for other communities as well. To learn more about the ways in which Raven continues to be engaged with the Chilkati Nation in pursuit of justice, visit raventrust.com. You're listening to Raven Debriefs. Your reviews help others find our show, so please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Perhaps one of the most difficult challenges of someone who is in any position of leadership is to determine priorities. And, and we've talked about this um, aspect that, uh, you know, changing things within the Canadian system, for lack of a better word, it, it takes so much energy and so much resources. I know that there's um, the the Deseco uh, initiative. I, I understand that that might be, you know, an example of, of you know putting energy where it can perhaps foster different priorities. Can you share a bit about that and, and what that is? Yeah, the Deseco initiative, like when the Supreme Court of Canada decision came down. You know, title didn't include all the areas that we still thought were quite important. So we did a lot of preliminary work just to get to the place where we were going to assert an area to say this is area that's important to us. We still want to protect it. We still want ecosystem stewardship and economic livelihoods considered. And we still need to do cultural revitalization within those spaces. So that was for us trying to create an alternative vision so it was our attempt to try to like say if we were to create something from scratch this is what we would this is how we would do it so that's still in the process i think that's you know in terms of priorities that's sort of you know how we had to sort of shift from having this defense mode to trying to like create a vision and try to you know establish what what we would do if we were leading the lands like we should You know, we were dealing with both Tosico mines and a huge level of forestry um, in our territory. And you had the province that basically gave away 5 million cubic meters of, of wood. And like the mills in town only had capacity to, to feed it 3 million per, per cubic meters per year. So it was just a free for all. So basically they could go in, do anything they wanted. and. And the only thing, like being able to sort of resist on a, on a somewhat of a small level, was um, First Nations. So it cost us a lot of energy and grief just trying to like to try to protect our territory as best we could, knowing that you know a lot of these places that people relied on to to hunt or you know have a livelihood were going to get destroyed. So that was like a lot of my effort was try to make our, our own land use plans so we could essentially try to challenge what was happening in the in the woods and and it didn't all turn out that well like there was definitely times where 
we could slow stuff down or we could develop larger plans and ask licensees to resist the temptation of like taking out the best best forests but it was largely a losing battle you know i think it felt like that also with the you know the way that the process was developed for Tsiko mines like the environmental assessment is largely not our process we had to you know invest our energy into a process that we didn't create you know things that were stacked against us um you know in every level i felt really stuck in a lot of ways and i think the dazi co initiative was really an attempt to go instead of like just fighting every battle we're not actually exerting what we want so even the fight with uh, tsiko mines the rhetoric that was happening was like well if you don't want to mine then what do you want and so that level of responsibility was put on us to sort of just try to describe what we wanted what are some of the main differences between a process that is that is led by and is according to principles of an indigenous group versus that of the, the province, for example, or the federal government. What are some of the main differences there? When it comes down to it, I think it comes down to some level of economic misunderstandings. I, I think the reasons why we do cumulative effects, for example, was really just food and food security. Yeah. You know, we want to know that the fish are going to be there. We want to know that yeah. the deer and the moose are going to be there. Um, we want to know that our medicines and berries are going to be there. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that the water is pristine to like make sure those things could continue living. In contrast, I think the province is ensuring that they have some level of tools to analyze what's happening on the land because they, they're devastating it with fo massive forestry projects. So I don't know if there's like a cohesive understanding other than in, in the way that they create their projects. And, you know, whereas... For us, I think the core, like I say, is, you know, ensure that we're sustaining it for the long, long term. I'm trying to make sure that, like, our, our leaders don't get pigeonholed in negotiations and that we continue to make, like, it projects so that we don't have to be in that position where we're, we're basically listening to the state or government to sort of determine whether or not our ideas are good. <laughs> like... Today we come together in the presence of the Chilcotin chiefs to fully acknowledge the actions of past governments committed against the Chilcotin people and to express the Government of Canada's profound regret for those actions. In the spring of 1864, the Chilcotin chiefs led a war party in defense of those homelands. The chiefs were attempting to repel a colonial road crew that wanted to build a road through Chilcotin territory without any legal agreement with the Chilcotin nation. The Chilcotin people took action to defend their territory. After convening a council to declare war, they attacked the road crew near Butte Inlet and removed all settlers from their lands before taking refuge in their territory beyond the reach 
of the colonial militia. Not long after, one of the leaders of the colonial militia sent the Tsukotin chiefs an invitation to discuss terms of peace. Head war chief Katasain and his men accepted this truth. As a show of goodwill, they rode into the camp to negotiate peace. Instead of being welcomed as leaders and respected warriors, they were arrested, imprisoned, convicted, and killed. We, we asked for exoneration from both the provincial government and the federal government. At the time, we got it from um, Premier Christy Clark, and she was... You know, I think she was elated and actually like relished the opportunity of actually working with us. And, you know, we were at the legislature for, for that event um, where the province, you know, essentially accepted the wrongdoing of, even if the province wasn't necessarily culpable that, you know, that the colony of British Columbia sure. has taken advantage of its health routine and not had any formal agreement or arrangement for usurping our lands. It took us a little bit longer to get to the, the federal exoneration, but in 2018 that happened. Today our government acknowledges that the colonial government of the day was unwilling to accept that these six chiefs were leaders and warriors of the Chilcotin nation, and that the Chilcotin people they led maintained rights to land that had never been ceded. Being at, on the floor of the House of Commons, you know, and, and, you know, must be able to bring our own drum and regalia and, you know, basically break convention. Like there, there was never allowed to be a drum ever before yeah. on the House of Commons. And, you know, when I think of like that, the force of reconciliation, you know, it is reconciling that you have to break conventions sometimes to be partners with your with Indigenous people on this land. You, you mentioned earlier that one of the teachings that guides you is uh, a sense of justice. And, you know, listening to you characterize the exoneration of your community's ancestors, I think is, yeah, it's, it's certainly consistent with that, that sense of justice. How, how does that feel as both a member of your community, a leader of your community, and perhaps to the extent that you can speak on it? How does that feel as a community to achieve something like that together? What does that do to your sense of unity, your sense of pride um, as a community? It's a big release, even though not everyone feels it. Like, sure. like sometimes being in the leadership, you see it and you can feel it and, it, and it's, you, 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 can, you, you know what kind of um, before and after it has, but, and, and this is reflective of probably other indigenous communities, is that you feel bottled up like you, instead of like your energy going toward the state and trying to rectify massive injustice and different forms of genocide that have been performed on us in the last 150 years, you know, you end up attacking your own people. You know, if you can't get anything and your leadership can't get anything done with, with the state and trying to, you know, create opportunities, they'll, they'll turn, on, turn on you and turn on their leaders you know, in a vicious way to, to sort of try to, like, break free.
think for myself, I think going to Ottawa and we brought our spiritual teachers, we brought people that were leaders in the past, you know, made sure that we had enough support there because I think it was a lot of weight put on our, ourselves. Yeah, in honor of the chiefs, I mean, I, you know, we call them chiefs. They were really, you know, a few were war leaders and even one of them was the son of uh, the warrior Fatsa Sain and he's probably only like 15 or 16 years old and had a, had a child as well that he left behind. Um, you know, I think for them at the time, I mean, they were dealing with smallpox and, you know, left devastated having, you know, 80 or 90% of the population die off. And what they knew was deliberate handling of smallpox. You know, I think from there on, it, it's really, it's been like a dark period of history where there's like been no trust. Those leaders went to, to find a truce. They didn't know what was going to happen either. And they ended up getting shackled and brought to Quenelle and, you know, prepared a, it was more of a spectacle hanging. But that level of betrayal and distrust has been with us for over 150 years. And I think that's why it was so big for us to to go there and to, you know, try to get the word of the federal government or the provincial government to say that those were wrong on their part. We believe, Mr. Speaker, in justice for Indigenous peoples. We believe in reconciliation. We believe it is time to act because Indigenous communities cannot wait another 150 years for hope. Mr. Speaker, unless we continue to tell these hard truths and truly address the violence of Canada's ongoing colonial history, we will never be able to heal the trauma left in its wake. And reconciliation will be nothing more than a cruel deception like the one that stole the life of six Selkotain chiefs 150 years ago. Throughout the program, you've heard clips from the broadcast of the exoneration of Chilcotin chiefs in the House of Commons, with commentary from Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, former Chief Roger William, and MP Guy Caron. You know, you, you can't help but contrast, like, then and now, too, like, the the context, the context is very similar, even though it's a very different time. But it, you know, when you're when you're thinking of people that want your land, they think you're in the way. They got to get rid of you. And it, you know, you look at Tosico Mines and the, that whole thing. There's there's still a level of denial on who owns that land. We're defending it just like we defended it a long time ago. It's still not our land, and you're, and there's still a level of disrespect in, in terms of who owns it. You know, when we went to the exoneration, trying to have this understanding of history and trying to share our perspective of it and seeing whether or not the the state would understand that perspective, and then being able to correct that correct the history and being able to show that we we legitimately defended our lands and they're always our lands and they always continue to be our lands. 
you know, I think there's always that understanding, but then there's also the political leg. I think it's hard for the House of Commons, it's hard for the province to, to constitutionally give that over. You know, I always felt like as a chief that we would get to those negotiations and they still, I don't think, fully happen. So it's, it's been really, it's been really hard um, for, for our, the character of our communities to kind of keep being resilient and keep going through the losses. And those are all the things that were going through my mind. And then just trying to think of the 150 years of how people kept, kept it together, having lost people to all these various things, but all stemming back from the smallpox and the war and, and residential school and everything that's happened since. So yeah, so that, that was a big weight, a big weight on me, just trying to represent everything and every generation that has come before me to sort of get to that point. I, I think I definitely felt the weight of it, just being there, thinking about our ancestors and even now talking about it. You know, even though I've done speeches about it or talked to them in my own community about it, like it, it's sort of a difficult thing to convey uh, because there is so much emotion attached to it. You know, shifting gears perhaps a little bit, and one of the aspects of this, you know, conversation is, you know, a space for, for you to reflect. How would you characterize your, your legacy? Yeah, um, I was lucky I got to do a bit of a speech the last week uh, as we were doing the All Candidates meeting. So I got to share with the community kind of some of the highlights of what I'm leaving behind as I transition out. But when I started, I, all I had was a, was a, basically the community energy plan that was just being finalized and a tourism study that I think became obsolete within a year. <laughs> um, but that's all I had to work with. And, and, you know, now there's probably, I think we have like a five or six corporate entities. We have like two to three energy projects. And then, you know, we did language revitalization plan. So, um, you know, I, I leave a fairly good legacy, you know, when I compare what we were able to do with other communities, you know, I think we put a lot of things in, in place for that. When I look around the community, you know, we were able to build a gym and we, before building the gym, we ended up looking to do an actual carpentry program. So we, we started with seven trainees, but we ended up with two they call themselves survivors. So they, they survived um, the last five years, I guess, in trying to develop their Red Seal. You know, just starting that program and, and having our own people being able to do carpentry within our community was, you know, a major accomplishment just for having a career and having people in the community work. Part of creating that, we knew that we had to hustle to create the next capital project. So <laughs> even though we, we leveraged to build a duplex before we built the gym so that they get the residential experience before they got a big commercial building experience. And then afterwards we built, I think a house accompanying the duplex. We've built the daycare right now. We built a cant house that I'm really 
happy that I'm leaving and I'm leaving it to a young mother that just had a baby like uh, mm-hmm. uh, this this week. And then we have the guest house that we're constructing. So it's another economic development project, but part of that whole plan on, you know, being able to mill our own wood and, and construct it. Like that's the first big project where we've been able to take our own trees, most of them where we know where they're coming from and being able to put into that project that's, you know, beautiful wood building built with our own carpenters. You know, I don't know if everyone sees that vision, but (laughs) for myself, you know, I never thought of just having an economy. Like it was always premised on like the idea that we're, we're building houses for ourselves, but we also, to build houses, you need people to have some level of income to pay for them and to continue to build them. Yeah. So it was always like this level of like, all right, we got to build careers and people up and we got to employ people and then they're able to build the houses that they want in their own in their own community so yeah so that was sort of the you know always the approach or the sustained approach that we were trying to make Going back to like languages, we're one of the stronger nations. You know, often it's about 40% of our communities that are speaking the language. But, you know, everyone from my generation down doesn't speak fluently. It's it's a really hard balancing act trying to figure out like how you're going to lead the community and try to keep everything going, you know, in terms of education and knowledge transfer and, and then also trying to like compete and and build up your community and, and, and still build up an economy and all that sort of stuff. So for me, myself, everything was a priority. <laughs> like, yeah. like we're in such a dire state that everything has to be compressed into this small time, time frame and all has to happen now or else it's never going to happen. So that's sort of how I approached it. And it's probably why I'm kind of having to reflect and cause I'm totally burnt out and, the reason why I'm partly stepping down is because I know I can't, I know I can't keep this pace up that we've created. I, I know we need to build more leaders and people that really aspire to the stuff that I started. So, yeah. I, I really appreciate you you sharing those thoughts because uh, you know listening listening to you it, it really. Um, paints a very beautiful picture of community building. I, I haven't personally been fortunate enough to visit uh, your territory, but um, yeah, I, I feel like I've, I've got a, a really beautiful sense of you know what goes on there and and, and the kinds of things that you know you're you're trying to build and and are building. It's it's really inspiring and encouraging to see w- what comes next for you. My daughters are now, you know, one's turning five this September. One just turned eight in July. And I kind of want to turn to them. You know, a lot of my work was inspired by them and and trying to, like, develop a community that is safe, that has opportunity that they could be involved in in as well. You know, in some ways, even though I'm stepping back, I I see a real opportunity to actually, like, refocus, like, exactly what I wanted to do. You know, I still want to keep working with, like, Dazzy Co. and some of the housing initiatives and some of the economic development projects. I've been able to see a lot of areas in which we still need to unify. And I see 
haven't got to like step in every community necessarily of our nation on a regular basis to understand like what are the real pitfalls or gap you know depending on what level of work I do afterwards I you know sometimes I'm able to observe very quickly and find solutions for and at least for my community I've been able to do that and often been the glue to kind of keep things together I think in the the whole scheme of nation building like I you know I, I see myself more of a strategist than I did a chief like I it's like I'm not the the politician like that once you know I'm too humble to be a real politician in a way. you're the, you're the quarterback yeah exactly and I, I I see myself situated in being able to do a better job without the hundred distractions that I had yeah <laughs> uh, it sounds very fulfilling so uh, yeah I certainly uh, you know, wish you well in, in that and um, you know, be excited to see uh, you know some of those things that your community does in the future carrying on uh, you know that legacy I know that one particular project um, that's that's very exciting is a solar farm. Is that? Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, I mean, I wish I could tell you the story that it, it was born out of the need to to sort of solve climate change or something like that. Sure, yeah. it, it it wasn't. Um, <laughs> it came originally my first couple of years. It was a level of hardship, I guess, around BC Hydro and energy prices yeah. and. It can be very um, difficult to service know. some of these communities, yeah, with uh, yeah. Know, sustainable electricity. Yeah, and we're, you know, we're a community that's relatively rural, and our cost of heating and electricity is probably higher than like uh, the cost of people that live in Williams Lake, for example. We don't have natural gas. Some people are on propane. You know, depending on how the house is built, like sometimes there's more energy put into like heating homes through electricity. We had people that, that weren't too happy with how the rates were going or how, you know, even smart meters were an issue. Overall, I was trying to find a solution at the time. Like I, I really was looking into clean energy alternatives and just to see how we would serve our community. We had a community energy plan and... I think we tried to leverage the whole smart meter program to see whether or not we could get more involvement in trying sure. to like for BC Hydro to start addressing more of our concerns. So, you know, out of it, we ended up working with the First Nations um, Energy and Mining Council and just happened to be around when, um, when Michelle Despot from EcoSmart was looking for a partner. And so I, invited them up to our territory and, and did a preliminary feasibility study. At first we were looking at my community, but I also showed them around to some of the other sites that were that were around and available. It was one of those projects that I think it was sort of the mid-range of being it wasn't high risk and it you know we, we, we had a chance to do this and not put ourselves too too much in deficit. <laughs> so because yeah. it's because it's, you know, even though it's a small project, it was slated to be about $2.6 million. And, it, and we constructed it, I think it took about $2.8 million for, in final construction. We were lucky to get along the way, and we didn't anticipate it, but we ended up getting about 
million dollars in subsidies and grants to offset the cost of the construction. That's great. So, so, you know, for us, it was the first, I think it's the largest First Nations owned solar farm in, in, in the province at 1.25 megawatt. I think we just got plugged in this spring. So we're starting to make revenue on it now. It really gives us an advantage because it's our First Nation project where we're actually gaining revenue to sort of source you know, the next project, basically. I'm so glad that you could join us today and share your reflections as a leader. And certainly speaking on behalf of, of Raven, you know, uh, our relationship with the, the Tsoko team as an organization of, and participating in campaigns, supporting things that are, that are deeply important to the nation and and indeed to, you know, as evidenced by all of our supporters and that these campaigns are incredibly important. You know, I'm so glad to have participated in this conversation and to hear your insights. And, and I certainly welcome, you know, future conversations with you and other members of your community. Thanks, Jeff. And yeah, thanks, Andrea, for putting this together. Thank you so much for listening to Raven Debriefs. Our show today was produced by Andrea Palferman. Huge thank you to Jeffrey Nichols and to Chief Russ Myers-Ross for this great conversation. Music was from Bear Witness and Isque. We also heard Chilcotin drummers and singers who for the first time ever brought their voices and drums to ring out on the floor of Canadian Parliament. By pulling together and backing strategic Indigenous legal challenges, Raven is defending nature, creating better laws, and putting reconciliation into action. Join us. Visit raventrust.com to learn more. I look forward to connecting with you on our next podcast. Have a great day. Take care.